hey, there's a little bit more energy today for the meet and greet. And I think I know the reason why. I think it's because the women of Multiply Church Lake Norman just came back from their retreat over the weekend. And I know I was just, I've been hearing some stories and hearing some of the testimonies and just getting the chance to, to talk to my wife, Ashley, about it. Um, I know it was an impactful two days. And so I know that I love the retreats. I absolutely love them for both the women and the men, that for them to come back and to see the transformation, but also to see the community that is formed on those retreats. And so, men, our retreat is coming up next in August. So make sure you don't miss that because there are so many awesome things going to be happening. That's coming up in August 15th through the 17th. More information to come on that as well. But make sure you secure your spots. Hey, I'm, uh, I'm actually not Pastor Zach. If you're looking for Pastor Zach, he's actually in Concord this weekend preaching alongside Pastor Doug. And you might have seen a couple of individuals, a family here, um, Adam and Alicia Fogelman and their, their kids have been spending the last couple of weeks with us here at Multiply Lake Norman. And they are church planters. And we are having, they're, they're announcing this in Concord. So Pastor Zach oversees all of our international expansion for the Multiply family. And so he's in Concord with Pastor Doug, with Adam and Alicia, because they're making the same announcement that we're going to announce today. And that is the fact that as uh, coming up in the next few months, in a, if not, not sure the exact date, but it's coming soon, is our expansion into Namibia. So we are officially going to launch Multiply Church Namibia in Windhoek, Namibia. This is the capital of Namibia. It's in Africa. And Adam and Alicia and their family have been called to Africa to reach people for Christ, to expand the message. And so can we just celebrate what the Lord is doing in and through Multiply Church, knowing that we are going to reach Africa now in such a great way. So many more announcements and details to come but we're just excited that we have the opportunity to expand into Africa, into the country of Namibia. So I got, a, I got a question for us. How many of you here are history buffs? Any history buffs? Absolutely love history. Come on, be, you can be proud. Raise them up. Raise them up. Is, is there a specific event or time or era that you like or just general history? General? General? You like general? Yeah, general? See, I don't know about the rest of us, but for me, my high school self never understood you. I never got it. I never understood the point of studying history. I, I can still remember the feeling that I get when I would be preparing for the test nine times, 10 times out of 10, it would be the night before, and I would be cramming for the test. Because here was, here was my mindset at the time. 15, 16, 17, 18 years old. I said, what in the world do I need to know facts and dates about people that I don't even know when I can just Google the information right next to me on my phone and get the answer faster than the professor can tell me the answer? So for me, it wasn't really important. So I would, I would stay up a lot of times, most of the night, if not all night, cramming for the test to learn the facts, to learn the dates, but as soon as I would sit down and take the test, after the test was done, I did just enough to get my C, to get my B, sometimes an A, I would immediately forget what I learned. And the reason why I would forget what I would learn is because I was just preparing to memorize. I was preparing to pass the test, but I was not preparing to internalize the information. How many of you can relate to that? And even, even today, I'm not a huge history buff, 
but I definitely respect more of the individuals and the teachers that can bring a moment in time to life, that can bring it to life, whether it's through book, whether it's through commentary, whether it's through story, whether it's through a documentary or a feature-length film. I'm grateful for the individuals that can take the text, take something that could be boring, and turn it into something that's actually interesting. See, history is important, and it's something that we, we can be passionate about, but we must find something within history that we are passionate about, or else we fall into the trap of just memorizing for memorization's sake, and we don't actually internalize it to be transformed. And this is why I love that we're going through the book of Romans. We're spending 16 weeks going chapter by chapter in the book of Romans, and we begin to understand the historical context of which it was written. We get to know Paul as a missionary as he's going throughout all the world, sharing the gospel. And the text that we see begins to come to life, allowing us, if we really understand it, allowing us not just to memorize a verse in Romans, but to truly internalize the message and internalize the scripture to allow transformation to actually take place. And as you see right now, Romans is saying, be transformed. Be transformed is the theme of this series. It comes from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, where it says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but what? But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So we're in this series to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We're in this series to be transformed by the text and the word of God, but we can't just listen. We can't just memorize a verse for us to truly internalize the information that causes transformation. So we've got to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And so I'm so grateful that we're in this book of Romans. And here's the reality. The reality is we could spend two to three weeks legitimately on every single chapter in the book of Romans. Because this book is theologically dense. Theolog theology is simply the study of God and religious belief. This, this book that Paul writes, this letter that Paul writes, is theologically dense. There's a lot of information to cover in the book of Romans. This right here, I brought this up as just an example. This is just one commentary on the book of Romans. This, is, this book is bigger than the Bible itself. And all that it does, it talks about the book. It breaks down verse by verse by verse, pages and pages and pages on every single verse in the book of Romans. And so there's not a lack of information out there. And as I was preparing for this message, this was actually very intimidating for me. Pastor Judah passed along this, this commentary to me. And as I was reading the chapter over and over again, as we go through chapter seven, I read the chapter, I read the chapter, I read the commentary, I studied, I prayed, and I literally felt like I was in a nine-round boxing match with Mike Tyson because I had no idea, thinking about all the information that I could cover in one chapter, how do you take all the information and turn it into a 30-minute digestible conversation that's relatable? Because I don't know about you, but for me, I like to learn on a third-grade level. If someone can break it down so simply and say, hey, this is what it is, great. But what I found in Romans 7 is that it's so theologically dense. There's so much to cover. I, you can almost get overwhelmed. 
But what the Lord spoke to me that I want to share with all of you as we go through some of some heavy topics today is that it don't lose focus on the very simple fact that the Lord is just calling us to simply spend time with him and to draw close to him. Look, knowing our theology is great. Knowing what the, Lord, what the word says, unbelievable. But at the end of the day, as we dive into Romans chapter 7, I want to remind us to remember to not lose fact, to lose focus of the fact that we are called to just spend time with Christ. And as we draw close to Christ, he wants us to be transformed because he knows the blessings that follow the transformation. So let's dive into the book of Romans. So we're in chapter 7 today, but before we actually get into the text, let's remember the context in which Romans was written. Romans is the sixth book of the New Testament. It's written by the Apostle Paul, who, who ended up writing 13 books in the New Testament. Romans is what we call an epistle. It's a letter, and it should be, it should be read as a letter. There are 16 chapters, but Paul didn't write the chapters. He didn't write the verses. He wrote a letter to the Romans in this time era to, sh to show them the power of salvation through Jesus Christ. He's really talking to the Jews and the Gentiles in Rome about what salvation is all about. And as we saw in chapter 6, what we see in chapter 6, chapter 7, and through verse 17 in chapter 8 is we're dealing with this concept, this theological concept called sanctification. We learned last week, Pastor Zach went through two theology terms, justification and sanctification. Justification is accepting Christ. It's, it's, that happens instantaneously. What we're talking about in chapters 6, 7, and halfway through chapter 8 is this concept of grace and sanctification. Sanctification is simply a lifelong journey of getting closer to Jesus. So we see in chapter 6 that Paul reveals that we are saved from the penalty and the power of sin. And then we get into chapter 7, and Paul goes deep into relating to his audience. That then what he says is that the Christian life isn't always easy, and it reveals our desperate need for a Savior. What Paul is really telling us is that the struggle is real. Do me a favor, look, look at your neighbor real quick and say, the struggle is real. Now, look to your other neighbor and, and really tell them, the struggle is real. Look, don't we say this all the time? A lot of times at the end, it's like hashtag first world problems, right? It's like when we go to a Starbucks and we're waiting in line and we order a, a vanilla latte. And the vanilla latte comes with three pumps instead of the five pumps you asked with. You take a sip and you're like, the struggle is real. Or maybe you get out of bed and you, you bump your toe, you stub your knee, whatever, the, the other way around, you stub your toe and bump your knee. As you're walking to the bathroom, you have the indoor plumbing that we are so lucky to have. We stub our toe, bump our knee, and we say, oh man, the struggle is real. But what we see in chapter seven is that the struggle is real really because of three things. Number one, the struggle is real because of the inability to let go of what was. And this is covered in verses one through six in chapter seven. We also see that the struggle is real because of our sinful nature. And we're going to cover that in verses 7 through 13. But that is really talked about throughout the entire chapter of Romans 7. And then third, we found that the struggle is real because of the battle we must fight. 
verses 14 through 23. And before we get into the text of, of Romans 7, I found it very interesting as I was studying for this, that in the book of Romans, the word law is mentioned and used 74 times. And in all the other letters that Paul wrote, the word law is only mentioned a combined of 47 times. So that puts into perspective the audience that Paul is talking to, because he's talking to both Jews and Gentiles in Rome. And the Jews are still living under the old covenant law that we find in the Old Testament. So God lays out the old covenant law through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And Paul is writing to the Romans, to the Jews and the Gentiles, who are a lot of them are still living under this old covenant law. And Paul is sharing the gospel to the Romans, making his case that the law that they are used to no longer applies. He is using what has become so familiar to them to relate to his audience, to prove that because Christ came and what he did on the cross, we now live under grace and not under the law. So we see that the struggle is real because of the inability to let go of what was. In the first six verses of chapter seven is actually a continuation of chapter six. Remember, this is a letter. This shouldn't be looked at different chapters, but for the, for the sake of understanding the text, the first six verses of chapter seven are a continuation of chapter six. Remember what he says, what Paul says in, in chapter six, verse 15. He says, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. So Paul points back to chapter six as he begins chapter seven. And in chapter seven, the first three verses, Paul uses an illustration of marriage that shows us that we are no longer bound to the covenant of the Old Testament law. So in verses one through three, he's simply saying, I'm gonna, I'm gonna paraphrase this for the sake of time. He's saying that if a husband dies, the wife is no longer under the bondage or the law of covenant of marriage. She is now released from that law when the husband dies and is able to and free to marry someone else. Same thing goes for the law. Paul states, if just a husband were to die, the woman is released from the law and the covenant of marriage and is free to marry someone else. And since the law died, when Christ shed his blood on the cross, we now had the freedom to be married with Christ and are no longer bound by the law and all the rules and regulations that were laid out in the Old Testament. So now that he has reiterated the fact that we are no longer bound by the Old Testament law, we pick up in verse six that says, but now by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in a new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. This is further clarified in Paul's letter in Galatians chapter three, verse 24 through 25. It reads, so the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. See, the, the law that we're talking about here is the law that was laid out by God. And that law in the Old Testament has over 600 commandments. And if we were to read all those commandments today, a good portion of them would just sound absolutely crazy. And you might be thinking to yourself, those absolutely don't apply to us today. 
But let me just give a couple of the Old Testament. Let me just give two examples. First one, it says, don't wear garments of two kinds of cloth. How many of us today are breaking that, that commandment, that law right now? Denim and cotton. We failed. Second one, don't plant more than one kind of seed in a field. How many of us have home gardens? Do you have tomatoes in there and cucumbers? Not good, right? So we, read, we can read all of these commandments that were laid out in the Old Testament, but know that they were here and they served a purpose for the time era in which God gave them this law. So the audience that, that Paul was, was writing to, a good portion of them are still trying to live by this law because it's what they've always been done. It's what they were comfortable. It's what they were used to. It's the, it's the way that they thought they would earn salvation by doing what the law commanded. So Paul is really taking his time to talk to the Romans and is saying, hey, I want you to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He's writing to the Jews and Gentiles in Rome. I want you to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. But if you keep living your life the way this way and think that the old covenant law is going to save you, you're mistaken. I can just hear Paul saying in this text, I know you've spent your entire life studying this law. I know it's been passed down to you from generation to generation, but I have great news. Because Christ came, we now live under grace and not under the old covenant laws. So just as Paul tells us in Romans that they no longer live under the old covenant laws, we may think, well, of course, we don't have to follow these commandments. They don't apply to us today. But may I take it a step further and say that these opening verses, these opening seven verses, six verses, in chapter seven, it proves that Christianity is about a personal relationship with Christ. And it's not just about being a religion of what we always grew up knowing of being a religion of no. Don't do this. Don't watch this. Don't listen to that. Don't gossip, don't steal, don't lie, don't cheat, don't have sex before marriage, don't do this. I mean, the list can be exhausting if we see it as just a bunch of rules that we are to live by. And maybe some of us grew up in a household that we were just learning for the sake of learning and memorizing because we were expected to memorize the rules and the laws and the commandments, but we never took the time to internalize them to understand what Jesus was really saying. So what Paul is saying to the Romans and what I believe he is saying to us today is like, I know you've been taught the do's and the don'ts, to try and, and earn your way into heaven, but Christ came to fulfill the law, which he says in Matthew chapter five. Christ came to fulfill the law so that we may put our faith in him instead of putting our faith in the things of this world and in the old covenant law. So when we decide to follow Christ and put our faith in him, that justification, we decide to do it, we see that he only wants the best for us. And when we understand that he only wants the best for us and when we spend time with him, we naturally want to do and follow the ways and teachings that Jesus talks about. So it's not just about rules. Jesus came not for rules, but he came for relationship. So we can't miss that point. And then Paul goes on in, in chapter seven, verses seven through 13. 
He shows us that the, that the law isn't bad. Let me just clarify that real quickly. The 10 commandments that we follow today, not a bad thing. Some of the laws that, that we follow today, the law in and of itself is not a bad thing. That's not the point Paul was trying to make. And that, that's laid out in verses 7 through 13. Paul, what Paul was really saying is that the law is, is, the, is not the problem. It's our sinful nature that is the problem. So we see that in the next set of verses. So number two, the struggle is real. The struggle is real because of our sinful nature. I'm going to read 7 through 13 really quick, and then I'm going to use an example that just paints a good picture in my mind for the sake of time that we have this morning. Let me just read it really quickly. Paul says, what shall we say then? Is a law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but then, then the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that this very commandment that, the, that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then, the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it, is it used what is good to bring about my death so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. Whew. We can read that for the next week and try to dissect that. But, but here, here's the simplest way that I can explain those verses. Think of the law as a mirror. You got that picture? Think of the law as a mirror. Both the law and a mirror serve a purpose. A mirror shows us that you may be having a bad hair day. A mirror shows us that you may have something in your teeth. It shows you that you have something on your face. The mirror exposes what was already there. Does that make sense? So the mirror exposes what was already there. It shows us, it exposes that we have something wrong with our hair, something in our teeth, something on our face. And before we ever looked into the mirror, we didn't know the condition of our hair. We didn't know the, we had something in our teeth or on our face. But because we are now made of aware of what's wrong through the mirror, we recognize that we needed to do something about it. Same as the law. The law is not bad in and of itself. The law is there to tell us what sin is. The law makes us aware of the sin as we just read. The law exposes sin as sin before we may have even known it was sin. Paul was saying that I didn't know coveting was a sin until the law told me that coveting was a sin. So the law tells us what sin is, even when we might have not even known what sin was. But now that we are made aware of the law, just as the mirror made us aware that we have something wrong with our face, something in our teeth, it tells us that sin is sin, and we now know that something needs to be done. So both the law and the mirror have something in common. They both tell us what the problem is, but have no ability to actually do anything about it. 
What, is, what Paul is saying in verses 7 through 13 is simply this, that the law ultimately points us to the need of a savior. But why? Why is this true? Because we are born with sin and our flesh is sinful and we are naturally drawn to sin. Sometimes that's hard to digest, but think about it in a, in a very lighthearted way. If you have kids, how many of us know that we do not have to teach our kids to be selfish? That was two hands raised. I like that. We don't have to teach our kids how to throw temper tantrums, do we? Even, even in our own lives, we can tend to live very selfish lives because we are in this constant battle of fighting the flesh because we are born with sin and because we are constantly battling the, the doing what's right versus what's, what's good and what's wrong, we find ourselves in this constant tension. So Paul is saying that the law is there to teach us what sin is, but just because the law is there, it points us, it's saying that the law can't save you, that you need, you need a savior that save you. And here's the good news, is that God loved us so much that he sent his son, Jesus, to this earth to become the sacrifice for our sins and and he came to do what the law could never do to save us by grace through faith that's great news that's such great news that paul writes about in the book of romans highlighted in chapter 7. so paul has told us already look we are not bound to the relationship of the law anymore we are now bound to christ and Paul has told us, yes, we live under grace, but that still doesn't give us a license to continue to live in our old ways. That means to continue to sin. Because as, as we, if we remember, the closer we get to Jesus Christ, and the more time we spend with him, the more we actually want to follow his ways and follow his teachings. But what we see in the remaining verses of the chapter is that, is that Paul is saying that it's not always easy to follow this Christian life. So the struggle is real because of the battle we must fight. So the, the remainder of the chapter is really talking about Paul's personal struggle with sin. Yes, Paul. Paul, the, the guy, remember, who wrote 13 books of the New Testament, who after he found Jesus, devoted his entire life to following him and making him known. Even Paul struggled with sin. Let me pick up in verse 15 all the way through 23. It says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do, not, if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. 
I read this and I'm thinking, who's on first? What's on second? And it's easy to do, but this, if we really understand this portion and understand that yes, Paul struggles with what we struggle with. This section of verses should be an encouragement for all of us today. Paul is saying that yes, we will have struggles. There is a battle that we must fight daily between doing what is right and doing what our flesh is telling us to do. There's a constant tension. There's a constant battle. Look, we face this most of the time and some, a lighthearted example is if I tell myself that I'm gonna start eating healthy on Monday and then Tuesday night rolls around at 9 p.m. and my, my sinful nature, my flesh tells me that I should go after that bag of chips. Or if I'm trying to get in the gym or if I, if I wanna read more, but then 7 p.m. rolls around, my girls are in bed and it's just so easy to watch Netflix rather than it is to actually get into the word or to read a good book. I'm constantly living this tension between I, should, I know what I need to be doing, but I don't do it anyway. Paul is saying that the struggle is real. And I know that there's areas in, in our lives that we can relate to what Paul is saying on a more serious note than just eating right and getting into the word. But I love what Dr. Frank Turek says in his, in his study of Romans chapter seven. What he says is, if there is no war inside of you, your old nature is in control. So what Paul lays out in these, these verses is it means that if you're wrestling or you're battling with something, that is actually a good thing. Because you now know that you cannot do this life. You cannot do this on your own. It points us to a savior that gives us grace. It points us to a savior that gives us grace, which is simply undeserved favor that is freely given. Look, God knows that we struggle. God knows that we battle with wanting to do right, but we fall short of wanting, of actually doing right. But we also all know that the struggle is, is what produces the results that we want. But it's not a struggle that says, just quit. It's a struggle that says, keep going. It's a struggle that says, persevere. It's a struggle that says, see this through. We know that if we wanna see results in the gym, we have to persevere. We have to keep going. We have to see it through. We must struggle and persevere and see it through to make it in a business endeavor. See, we will struggle with sin because of our human nature. But when we persevere and when we continue to draw closer to Christ, we will experience the peace that He promises us. The peace of knowing that we are heading in the right direction. Not saying that we've achieved the destination, but knowing that we are heading in the right direction and knowing that we are not living a life that is free of sin, but we have the opportunity with Jesus Christ to live a life that is free from the bondage of sin. And that life and that peace that Jesus promises us is only found in relationship, true relationship with Him. Will you stand with me this morning? See, what we've seen Paul laid out in the first 23 verses of this chapter is the struggle, is the realities of this life. But I, I'm glad that whoever put the verses and the chapters together 
Maybe I, I, I just have to think that the individuals putting the verses and the chapters together, that they saw the, verse, the first 23 verses and they said, wow, this is some heavy stuff. This is real. I think we should put verse 24 and 25 in there just to give people a little bit of hope, to boost the morale a little bit. Because chapter seven doesn't end with verse 23, it ends with verse 25. In verse 24 and 25, I'm gonna read from the message because it simply lays it out. It says, I've tried everything and nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can do anything for me? Isn't that the real question? The answer, thank God, is that Jesus Christ can and does. He acted to set things right in this life of contradictions where I want to serve God with all my heart and my mind, but I'm pulled by the influence of sin to do something totally different. So as we step back into worship to reflect and to listen to what the Lord is telling us in this moment, let's remember the good news of the first portion of uh, verse 25 that will further be expanded upon next week as we get into Romans chapter 8. Verse 25 says, the answer, thank God, is that Jesus Christ can and does. So when you find yourself asking, how in the world is my marriage gonna turn around? You simply state 725, Jesus Christ can and does. How are my finances gonna turn around? You say, Jesus Christ can and does. How are my kids gonna find the Lord? You simply say chapter seven, verse 25, Jesus Christ can and does. How do I get over my addiction? Chapter seven, verse 25 says, Jesus Christ, can and does. How can this sin no longer have a grip on my life? You simply say, thank you, Jesus, for chapter seven, verse 25, where it says, Jesus Christ can and does.